Chase. Morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to be here this morning, and I want to first say thank you to Woodburn Baptist Church uh, for giving me this opportunity to come. Uh, actually, uh, what took place was a few weekends ago, Woodburn sent me to Louisville, um, and it was to a conference uh, where I learned to basically, uh, they did a critique of my preaching, and Frank went with me, and they basically, you know, taught me how to preach better, so to speak, and uh, I had to give the same sermon, a shortened version of the sermon, in 16 minutes. Um, so basically, I sounded like an auctioneer giving off a sermon, and it was an absolute disaster. <laughs> um, so hopefully, you all won't have that same experience today. Um, but I do want to thank you. I want to thank our visitors for being here. Um, if this is your first time here at Woodburn, I want you to know that Brother Tim is an excellent pastor. He's an excellent preacher, and please do not allow me to run you off. So I would encourage you to come back next week to get the full effect of Woodburn Baptist Church. Um, but the passage I'm going to be reading on this morning... It's from the book of John, if you have your Bibles, uh, chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. Many of us know this as the Doubting Thomas passage. Um, but again, in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29, and I'm going to begin in 19. Uh, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger, and see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing." Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Pray with me if you would. Father in heaven, we just thank you for this day that you've given us, God. We thank you for the time that we can come here and, and worship you freely. And God, that we could just uh, hear more about your word. I ask that you would speak through me this morning, Lord. And I know I'm not the most eloquent speaker um, but God, I ask that you would just uh, touch the lives of people here through this message that you've given us this morning. We thank you for all your many blessings. We ask that you be with those uh, not able to be here and those less fortunate than us. Be with those in Haiti at this time, God. And just uh, we pray that your justice and your love and mercy would overcome the world. We give you praise and glory for honor for all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, just to give a little bit of background information into this passage, uh, first of all, uh, where we're at here in the story is that uh, Jesus has been crucified and he's been resurrected from the dead, but the disciples at this point uh, don't know that. Uh, the disciples have locked themselves up for fear of the same Jews who had crucified Jesus. Uh, the reason why they've locked themselves up is basically what Jesus had started was what at the time was known as a messianic kingdom of God movement. Um, there had been a lot of these. Basically, a figure would pop up uh, in Israel at the time, and they would claim to be the Messiah. They would claim to be the one that God had chosen through whom the covenant of Abraham would proceed through this individual and that they would begin the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. 
many of these people would, would come to Israel, they would claim to be the Messiah, and they would gather followers, just as Jesus had done. Um, when this was perceived as a threat to Rome, these Messiah figures would be killed, they would be put to death, um, and this, this movement would cease to be, mostly because the followers themselves would also be killed. They would be found um, and taken care of as well, again, seen as a threat to Rome. Uh, we actually have two examples of this that are found in Scripture. Uh, if you'll turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 5, and it's in verses 33 through 39. And uh, a couple of the apostles here have been put in prison, and they are preaching Christ to the Sanhedrin, which is a group of Pharisaic Jews. Um, and the Jews intend to kill them, and that's what we're going to pick up in this story. And it says in verse 33, But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders for the men to be put outside for a short time. And he said to them, this being, he said this to the Pharisees, Men of Israel, take care of what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this is the plan or action is, excuse me, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overcome them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Now keep in mind, Gamaliel did not believe that Christianity was of God, but this is what he spoke um, to the Sanhedrin at that time. So again, Jesus' disciples had locked themselves up because they knew when Jesus was crucified, essentially, that they had backed the wrong horse. Um, they knew that they had believed in someone who had claimed to be the Messiah but was not, because the Messiah was not to come and die. So we'll go back to the uh, passage we looked in, um, and starting in verse 19, I'm just going to kind of go through these verses with you. Verse 19 says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So Jesus appears to his disciples in his glorified resurrection body. This is a body that can eat, drink, and be touched, but as we see, it's also a body that can pass through a locked door. Um, Jesus comes to his disciples and he declares peace. And in verse 20 it says, And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Uh, immediately the disciples go from a state of fear to a state of rejoicing when they encounter Christ. Um, basically, when they encountered Christ in this way, they knew that everything that he had said, everything that he had done and claimed to be was proven true by his resurrection. They knew that he was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. He was the intended Savior of the world. Everything that they had believed had not been a lie. And this is a parallel to our own lives when we first encounter Christ. When we encounter Christ and we're born again, we go from a state of fear and oppression and of doubt and of guilt to a state of rejoicing upon encountering him. And we subsequently, after we know him, uh, we encounter him each and every day through reading the scriptures, through prayer, through time alone, that intimate time with Christ. Um, we get to have that same rejoicing in him. So what does Jesus do right off the bat? In verses 21 through 23, it tells us, so Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Jesus begins once again to encourage his disciples in their task that he's given him, the task of the Great Commission, the task of being the salt of the world, being the light of the earth, being the city on a hill that cannot be hid. 
Um, Jesus empowers them with the Holy Spirit. And their task is going to be, again, to go out and reconcile the the world to God through the name of Jesus Christ. They're going to be God's ambassadors, God's representatives on earth, reflecting his image once again, which was mankind's original intent in the garden, uh, and now would be able to do again through the name of Christ. Um, However, one of the disciples is missing. Thomas is missing. We look in verse 24, and it tells us, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So we have to understand, when he comes back to the disciples, he's still going to be in that mindset of fear. He's still going to be in that mindset of unbelief. Um, For Thomas, he had still been suckered into believing a lie. And what does he say here when the disciples um, tell him what what they've seen? We look in 25. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, sometimes we're very quick to call uh, Thomas out for being unbelieving and for being stubborn. Um, But we really shouldn't do that at all because we have to realize that at this point, Thomas is being rational. Um, Thomas knows, again, what's at stake here. He knows that um, all these past movements, when when a man has come and claimed to be the Messiah and failed, that their followers were soon after dispersed and killed as well, Thomas knows that his very life is at stake. And he is not about to put his faith into a man who simply claimed to be the Messiah of Israel but couldn't back it up and was crucified on a cross. So we look in verse 26, and it says, After eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. So eight full days passed by. And once again, Christ, the resurrected Savior of the world, comes to the disciples while they're in a locked room and declares peace to them. And then who does Jesus directly address? And we look in verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now the thing about this is Jesus is not making a show of arrogance here. He's not sternly humiliating Thomas in front of the others. He's not giving a kind of, you should have listened to your your fellow disciples moment, or I told you so moment. Uh, Rather what he is doing is what he's already done for the others, and that is he is restoring Thomas. Jesus is making Thomas the man that Thomas has to become in order to do the work that he's been called to do within God's kingdom. And the thing about Jesus is, even today, he will do this in our lives, revealing our faults, restoring our faith, and changing our hearts, if we'll allow him to come in. Now we look here at what Thomas's response is at this point. In verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And this is Thomas's ultimate confession. There's an incorrect interpretation of this scripture, actually, this piece of scripture, uh, that believes that Thomas says this in a, in a kind of uh, astonishment. In other words, when he's saying, my Lord and my God, he's kind of taking the Lord's name in vain, you might say. He's saying, oh my, you know, but that's really not what's going on at all. Um, what Thomas is doing here is he is confessing that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the ruler of all the King of Kings, Jesus is his Lord and God. And we look at the two things that that means. First of all, Lord here is a term that would actually be given to an emperor at that time. Caesar was called Lord by the Romans. Um, Lord did not necessarily mean God. What Lord meant was authority, a power, a king. Um, So when Thomas confesses Jesus as Lord, he is confessing that Jesus is his ultimate authority, that he is going to submit to Jesus, that everything else um, doesn't matter in light of Jesus, that Jesus is the ultimate head of who Thomas is. 
And when he confesses Jesus as God, is even bolder. He, he professes that Jesus is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, that he is the creator God who everything has been created through him. So again, this is Thomas's ultimate confession of faith. And Jesus' response in verse 29, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And at this point in the story, we encounter ourselves. You see, we are the ones who are not able to visibly see the Savior in his glorious resurrection body in person. We don't get to see that. But yet we still have a response that we have to make. And how will we respond is the question. We all have a choice today as well. Uh, will we proclaim Jesus as our Lord and God as Thomas did? And we have to understand again that this is not something that Thomas could proclaim. This is not something Thomas could confess and simply say and then go about his daily life. He couldn't go back to his daily routine. He couldn't just go on living his life the way he had been. Such a proclamation that Thomas made is life-changing. For us to proclaim that Jesus is our Lord and our God is for us to realize that we must submit to him and give him full authority of our lives. We recognize him as our King of Kings as well. To recognize him as our God is that he is our creator. He holds us accountable as his creation to do what he has created us to do. And we are indebted to him with our very lives and our salvation rests in his hands. That is what we must realize if we're to make a proclamation such as this. But the thing is, we also have another decision to make before that. Before we can proclaim as, as Lord and God, uh, we have to decide, like Thomas, do we believe that he's been resurrected? And perhaps we too have our doubts. Um, perhaps we wish to be like Thomas. We want to make a rational decision about this because we know just as Thomas's literal life was, on, was at stake here, our lives, the way that we live our lives are at stake if we confess Christ as our Lord. If Christ is not really Lord, why are we submitting to him? Why are we going by the standards that he has set up? So we wish to make a rational decision also as to whether or not we believe that Christ has been raised from the dead. And so to help us do that, I'm going to provide six pieces of evidence that we do know from history about the resurrection. Um, this is just six. There's more out there, but these are six that I wanted to highlight to you all. And the first one is that women found the empty tomb. Now a lot of you may be thinking, so what? You know, women found it, men found it, who cares? Um, this is actually essential to the context in which the Gospels were written. In each of the stories, it is women that find the empty tomb of Jesus and then, be then begin to go out and tell the others. Uh, but the thing is, in the first century, women were not as highly regarded as they are today. Women's testimony did not hold up in court. If you were going to make up a story and say that they found an empty tomb, you would have men finding the empty tomb. And more specifically, in the context of the Scriptures, you would probably have the disciples finding the empty tomb. But that's not what we have here. So what is the significance of that? The significance of it is this, that if this is the case, if women find the empty tomb, the only reason someone would have wrote this is if it really happened. They wouldn't make up this story. They would write that it really happened because women did find the empty tomb. Second piece of evidence we have, going back to the apostles. We look at the apostles and we see that they were all scared for their very lives. Again, they knew exactly what happened to followers of these messianic kingdom of God movements. They knew that the Romans would hunt them down and crucify them or kill them in another way. But they knew that their lives were at stake here. They were scared for their lives. And we find them historically and in the scriptures hiding for their very lives. They had no reason to go out and proclaim Christ. Um, Peter, we see, denied Jesus three times. And people said, I know I saw you with him. I know that you knew him. He says, I didn't know the man. I have no idea what you're talking about. Because he knows if he is associated with Jesus, he's next in line. But then what happens historically? Suddenly, these same men begin to go out and preach boldly 
that Christ is the Savior of the world, that he has been raised from the dead. And they're not afraid, and they're not afraid of the consequences. And they go out and they throw away their very lives. Most of them are martyred. Um, they know that they will die a martyr's death for this, but they know that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He's been raised from the dead. They firmly believe this. And that's the thing that people can't take away from this story is the fact that these men, if anything else, firmly believed that they had seen the resurrected Christ. And it caused them to go out and give up their very lives for him. So, number three, and that's Paul. Now, a lot of you may have heard of the Apostle Paul, but let me give you some background on who Paul was before he became known as the Apostle Paul. Paul was a Pharisee of the strictest order. Um, Paul did one thing, and he did it very well, and that was he persecuted the church. Um, Paul would actually drag men, women, and children out of their homes and have them imprisoned, many of them stoned to death because they were Christians. Paul despised Christianity. Now, you may think, well, what would cause him to despise Christianity? Um, the thing is, as a Jew, he knew good and well the stories of the Old Testament. He knew what happened to Israel when they strayed away, when they followed false gods. And he firmly believed in his heart that Jesus was a false teacher. He believed he was leading the people of Israel away to follow after some cult that really didn't serve the true God. So he was going to do whatever he had to do to cut off, you know, kind of prune this, uh, this plant. I don't know how that works. But cut off these bad apples, so to speak, and, and get rid of this. Um, he was not going to allow this to infect Israel. Um, so what he did, again, was he persecuted Christians. He went from town to town. But what happened with Paul is on the way to a place called Damascus to do what he did best, he suddenly had a complete 180-degree turnaround change of heart. Paul didn't just stop persecuting Christians. Paul became what was known at that time as the greatest Christian evangelist in the entire world. Paul, again, if we look back at who he was as a Pharisee, Paul would have been wealthy. Paul would have had the great respect from those around him, from his peers. And thirdly, Paul would have had God on his side. Paul firmly believed that he was doing the will of God. Um, so he had everything going for him. But Paul throws all of that away for some unknown reason. Why would a man do that? He throws it all away and he becomes the greatest Christian evangelist in the world at that time, starting churches, building up these churches, writing 13 letters that we have in the New Testament today. Um, and what this would amount for him to, again, remember he had fame, he had fortune, and he had gone on his side. What this would lead to for Paul is a life of poverty. Uh, Paul would be beaten, he would be whipped, he would be imprisoned, he was stoned and left for dead at one point. He was shipwrecked on his way to spread the gospel. And finally, at the end of his life, during the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero, Paul was beheaded because he preached Christ and was not afraid to back down from that. So why on earth would a man do this? Um, again, we have to believe that if, you know, if today you struggle with the idea that there is a God, we know that Paul wasn't, uh, if there is no God, Paul couldn't have been convicted about any of this within his heart. Again, if there is no God, Paul believed he was on God's side. So Paul wouldn't have been convicted about any of this. But what happened here? Um, one of the explanations that the secular world tries to give is, well, Paul simply went insane. That's the only explanation we can give is Paul lost his mind. But sorry enough, that doesn't make any sense. Um, Paul wrote 13 beautifully crafted, intelligent letters that we have in the New Testament today that connect the Old Testament scriptures with the New Testament scriptures. And he shows how Christ is the Son of God, how Christ is the fulfillment of all the prophecies. Paul also started churches, and he built these churches up. Um, surely someone out of these thousands and thousands of people that Paul encountered would have thought, you know, something's a little off about this guy if the man had truly went insane. 
Uh, but that wasn't the case. Paul did not go insane. So what happened to Paul? What caused him to throw everything away? And we find in the scriptures through the historian Luke and also through Paul's own accounts about his own life that Paul encountered the risen Christ on that road to Damascus. Paul encountered the real living God. And Paul had a heck of an encounter too. You can imagine what it would be like um, to be persecuting the church of God and then God confront you face to face like he did Paul. Paul was ashamed of himself. Paul was burdened by that. But Paul also knew that now his duty, he had been so zealous for God before, now he knew who God was and he could go on and be zealous for him again um, in this new way. And that's the explanation that we have for Paul is that he really did encounter the resurrected Christ. Uh, fourth piece of evidence that I'm going to go over uh, is a method of history known as multiple attestation. Basically what this means is when multiple things attest to one thing. In other words, a saying or a story is authentic if it is found in several different sources. Again, we have multiple accounts of the resurrection that are found in the New Testament, both in the letters and in the Gospels. And we have to realize that the Bible you know, wasn't written all by one author. Um, these were written by many different people, and they were compiled together as one in telling the story of what God has done. So these were written by different authors, yet they account for the same resurrection account. And we also have this passage in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 that I want to go over with you right now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, if you have your Bibles. Um, 1 Corinthians, it's called that because this is Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. But chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, and Paul writes this, beginning in verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Now stop right there just for a moment. What he's saying there, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, he's saying that most of these people are still alive. Some of them have died, but most of them are still alive. That's significant. We'll come back to that. Picking up in verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Um, again, Paul here talks about the many people who encountered the resurrected Christ. And our first objection here is, well, who cares? Again, if we're going to be skeptic about this, we have to look at this and we say, Paul could have made it up. Why couldn't he have even made that up? I and mean, we have no way of knowing. Um, but the thing is about these letters is these were open letters. This was an open letter to the church in Corinth. What they would have done when they received this letter is they would have copied it down and they would have sent the copies around to all the different churches. Even if they hadn't done that, it was still an open church within, or open letter within their own church. Um, so basically what Paul is doing here, knowing that, he's saying, look, if you don't believe me that Christ has been raised from the dead, you can check with these people. They're still alive. Go ask them if they saw him. Go ask him. You've seen these 500 people that saw him at one time. Go ask them about the resurrected Christ, and they will tell you they did see him. Um, again, one of the secular answers to this kind of thing is that it's a mass hallucination. You know? um, and we have to acknowledge from a psychological point of view that that can happen. In other words, if we all get wrapped up, a big group of people, we could do it here today, you know, and have a mass, kind of go into a mass hysteria. We get very emotional about something, and everybody begins hallucinating. Um, that's the suggestion here. Well, everybody hallucinated. They're all in mass hysteria. But the problem with that is also that not everyone hallucinates the same thing. 
Um, in other words, if we all had that kind of experience here, if we all had a big mass hallucination, I may be seeing a big purple elephant in the room, and Andrew here may be seeing a blue river uh, running into a green tree or something else weird like that. Um, you know, I mean, we don't all see the same thing, but these individuals all saw the bodily resurrected Christ, and they attested to that, and they attested that they could touch him and see him and feel him. So again, we look at our fifth piece of evidence, excuse me, and uh, we look back at the, the notion of this being a messianic kingdom of God movement and the fact that there had been many of these, but that once the leader would be killed, these movements would cease to be. They were over. Why is that significant to us today? We look at Christianity today and we see that it is the largest religion in the entire world. Um, that's not the evidence itself that it's the largest religion in the world, though it helps. The evidence is the fact that it's even around. It made absolutely no sense at all within the Greco-Roman world or within the Jewish world that the Jewish Messiah would come to the earth and would live and would be killed. It makes no sense. That's why all these other Messianic movements had ceased to be. Once their Messiah was killed, they knew it was over. He was not the Messiah. There was nothing to believe anymore. Yet Christianity, as we see, flourished. And these people began to go out boldly and claim that Jesus was Lord and Caesar was not. Uh, they were persecuted for this, but they believed firmly that Christ had been raised from the dead. Why does Christianity exist if it's not supposed to? That's the question that we're faced with. And finally, the last piece of evidence that we have, and this is more specifically for the Christian who has come to know Christ, and for those of you who are not Christians, but you've seen what has happened in the lives of the believers as they've changed, is that ability to live in Christ. Now what this means is when Christ comes into our heart and he changes us, he forgives us forgives us of our sins. Uh, we're not perfect by any means, but we're completely changed from who we used to be. We're new creations made to worship the king, made to go out and reconcile others to know him. Um, a good piece of uh, scripture for this is I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. And Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Peter, in his letter to the church, it's found in 1 Peter 1.8, he says to know Christ is to know joy unspeakable and full of glory. Paul, again, in Philippians 1.21, writes, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, so often we look over here at the end part of that verse and we see the die is gain part and we think, that's so great, you know, when I die someday I'll be able to go and be with the Lord forever. And that's good, yes, but we forget so often this first part of the verse that we have. The first part of the verse which says, to live is Christ. And we have to look at how deep that is. Um, if I had the resources, I would have brought in a piece of paper to each of you today and had a line on there that just said, to live is blank and ask you to fill it out. Now, I think speaking for most of us, we probably would need at least a sentence some of you may have needed a paragraph. Some of you would have said, look, I'm going to have to take some time and write a book on what it means to live, what it means to be alive. But for Paul, it was one word, one name, Christ. To live is Christ. Jesus, when he came, said, I came to give life and life more abundantly. 
To know him intimately is a beautiful thing. To experience him each day in prayer and reading the scriptures is an exciting thing. I uh, got back from California this past Wednesday. I think uh, Andrew shared earlier. I had been up there looking at seminaries. Um, and we did all the famous stuff. We went to Hollywood. Uh, we went to Universal Studios. We went to uh, Venice Beach and all these different places. But on a normal day, on a normal street, just walking around out of nowhere, <clears throat> I met this man. Can we get him up there? There he is. That is Christopher Lloyd, a.k.a. Doc Brown from the Back to the Future trilogy. He's also been in a few other movies and shows. He was on the show Taxi. Um, he was on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, Angels in the Outfield, a few other things. But that man right there. And I shook this man's hand. That's a true story. Another true story is that I'm charging $5 admission for anyone who wants to shake the hand that shook Christopher Lloyd's hand. That's true. So see me after church. Um, and I was starstruck. I was absolutely starstruck. My heart was racing at 1.21 gigawatts. And if anybody gets that joke, you'll get your $5 back after you shake the hand. Um, but, you know, I was absolutely starstruck, and I thought, how exciting. And as soon as I met him, you know, after I walked away, and one of my friends let out a big shriek when they saw it go down, um, I pulled out my phone, I immediately called home, and I called my cousin, and I called some of my friends, and I started text messaging people. And when I got back to the hotel room that night, I got in, I got on my Facebook, and I updated my status. You know, I shook Doc Brown's hand, great Scott. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, I was very excited about this. I couldn't wait to tell people about this encounter that I had with Christopher Lloyd, who really didn't care if he had met me or not. Um, in fact, truth be told, he tried to kind of get a, you know, avoid eye contact, but I wouldn't let him. Um, but the thing about that is, even now it begins to slip me, some of, some of the, escape me, some of the details of that. I don't remember what day that was on specifically. Um, I don't remember too much about it or what he looked like. Um, and the thing is, that's not the story that I'm going to be telling for the rest of my life. For the rest of my life, you can take that down now if you want. Um, for the rest of my life, I'm going to be talking about how on a Tuesday night, March 16th, 2004, at a revival in Hartford, Kentucky, an atheist by the name of Chase Thompson encountered the resurrected Savior, and he spoke to my heart, and he came into my heart, and he forgave me of my sins, and he made me a new person. And that's the story that I'm going to be carrying on for the rest of my life, talking about who he is and what he has done and how I want others to experience that. Because that's the goal of preaching and teaching and telling others about him is that so others might come to know him as well because it's a beautiful thing. He has the best intentions in mind for us. He loves us so much. He died on a cross for our sins, and he was raised from the dead. Again, I presented the evidence today, but there's other evidence as well. Um, but we have to make a decision, as we said earlier. Knowing this and believing that Christ has been raised, we have to realize that everything he said was true. And he said many things. And he talked about a judgment day that was coming. And he talked about how all those in him could avoid that. And all those in him could be count as righteous in him. We have to decide whether we're going to choose the world or whether we're going to proclaim Christ as our Lord and our God. Jesus frequently um, told his disciples to count the cost. A disciple came to him one time. He said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he says, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And he encouraged these disciples to count the cost of discipleship. To proclaim him as Lord is a very bold move. You're giving him absolute authority of your life. But again, the alternative is nowhere 
even close to that. Because again, we also proclaim him as God. And we recognize that we are indebted to him as our creator. But also as his creation, he knows what's best for us. He has exactly our best, what we're made to do in mind. He knows exactly what he made us for. And he's going to provide us with that if we'll proclaim him as our Lord and our God. So today, each and every one of you, uh, whether you know Christ or not, you need to think about these things. You need to consider these things in your heart and in your mind about his resurrection and the fact that he is Lord and God. Whether we want him to be Lord and God of our lives or not, he is still Lord. He is still King of Kings. Uh, so in a minute, I think Andrew's going to come up and lead in an invitational. And you're going to have uh, the opportunity, if you'd like, here today to come pray. I know that uh, some of the deacons are going to be at the organ side to pray for you if you have a physical ailment. Um, but if you need to talk to somebody or if you need to pray, maybe you want to receive Christ into your heart today, um, we're giving you that time to do that here. Uh, again, I haven't presented all the evidence, and I would be happy to talk with you about these things. I know many men of God in here today that would be happy to talk with you. Um, if you have any tough questions, you know, we want to answer those for you because we firmly believe. And again, I'm not the most eloquent speaker. I use my notes quite a bit here today, but I firmly believe what I'm saying to you here today. I firmly believe that Christ is Lord and God. And we would all be happy to work through those tough questions that you might have. We may, we'll be happy to talk to you about things that, you might be, that might be bothering you or worrying you about the Scriptures. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and pray with me. And again, we're going to have an invitation after this. And you're welcome to come up and pray or talk with somebody or whatever you need to do. Father in heaven, we thank you for the day that you've given us. God, we thank you that you are Lord of lords and King of kings. We thank you that you are Lord and God. We thank you that you offer us to come to you freely on the basis of your blood that you shed on the cross. And we thank you for the resurrection, God, that you showed that you were who you said you were that you were God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. We give you praise for the price that you paid on our behalf, and we thank you for your mercy. Draw our hearts near to you today, in Christ's name, amen.